This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Yes, friends, welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. So good to be with you. We are back. Uh, We are in the middle of a series called Transcending Eschatology. So we will dive into that here in a moment. Um, It is September 4th, 2023. So yeah, welcome back. Um, Before we dive in, I just wanted to apologize for the second time for the sound quality. So let me just geek out here for a few minutes, right? The podcasters listening might be interested in this on some level. I don't know. Or they'll say, duh, dude, you're such a noob. I can't believe that you actually didn't see that coming. But what I want to talk about is this little thing called a noise gate versus noise reduction. So I realized that my sound was really, really bad. And I thought it was just because I was in a new house. There's no paintings on the walls. There's no carpet hardwood floors everywhere. The sound just literally bounces around the room. And so in my head, I'm like, oh, it's because I'm in this new space, right? This new office. It's it's just bad. So what I did is I did a little bit of research and I found this thing called a noise gate. And they're like, oh, you just need to turn the noise gate on and it'll it'll just get rid of all that bad background noise. Well, no, it doesn't. It's terrible. And my episode last time was horrible. I went back and listened to it and realized just how bad it really was. What a noise gate does is when you're talking, you still hear the background noise. Then the minute you stop talking, all that background noise is cut out, which is awesome, right? It's completely quiet. The problem is it jacks with your your sound in that brief millisecond when you start talking or when you start talking, stop talking. And it's terrible. It was horrible. So I did a little more research and I realized, no, you need noise reduction, not a noise gate. So I purchased this um, denoiser is what it's called. Uh, Bertom Denoiser Pro, 25 bucks, um, works like a charm. And I realized that I actually had a noise reduction uh, plugin installed, but at some point the company, Waves Audio, decided that they were going to stop honoring the fact that I bought that noise reduction plugin from them and instead make me sign up for a subscription in order to continue using it. So at some point along the way, my noise reduction had actually stopped working because Waves Audio decided to pull it. That's why my audio was so bad. Had nothing to do, well, I'm sure it had something to do with the room, but it was more because of the noise reduction plugin no longer functioning. I had got it all set up the way I liked it. Uh, Sound was great for a good long time. And then that's why it stopped working. So purchased the new one, got it installed, went back and fixed uh, the last episode. So if you listened to it when it was really bad, I apologize. It's been fixed. You can go back. You can listen to that one again. Should be good to go. And hopefully this one's good to go. And all of the ones in the future. So here we go. Uh, thanks for geeking out for me a little bit there. Um, 
may be helpful to some of you out there if you're podcasters or if you are concerned or wondering about the audio. For the rest of you, again, I apologize. I'm not going to lie. It's a steep learning curve, at least for me. Um, But I think we have it sort of figured out and we're back in business. So that said, let's dive in. Today's topic, more sets of seven. This is part 11, by the way. So if you followed along, great to have you with us. If you are brand new, you may want to go back and start at part one. So more sets of seven. Chapter one, how did seven become so popular? Chapter two, the seven seals and seven trumpets. And chapter three, decoding the sets of seven. Chapter one, how did seven become so popular? Now, I've mentioned this before, right? The number seven seems to be just a very popular number, at least in the book of Revelation. But quite honestly, it came from the entire Bible. According to BibleStudyTools.com, here's a little more info on the number seven in the Bible. So apparently it appears over 700 times in the Bible and in many different ways. For example, we're looking at sets of seven in apocalyptic prophecy which suggests that the number must be important for some reason. But even in Genesis 29, it describes how Jacob worked seven years for Laban, his uncle, in order to marry one of his daughters. Then he had to work another seven when Laban scammed him into marrying the wrong daughter first. In the book of Joshua, we read about the children of Israel marching around Jericho, right? Uh, God tells them to march around the city for seven days. Then, on the seventh day, they were supposed to march around the city seven times. At the end of that, seven priests were to blow on seven horns, and then the people were to shout, and the city would be theirs. Now, there's some important groups of people in the Bible, like the seven deacons and the seven spirits of God, things like that. And then there just are random verses, like this one in Genesis, where God says, In seven days I will send rain. Why seven? Why couldn't he have had a chat with Noah 10 days before the rain came or a month before? So we see that there are countless verses that start to build this case for the number seven being an important number. In biblical numerology, seven is said to stand for completeness or perfection or spiritual completeness of some sort. Then, the article that I was reading went on to explain that the Bible has even been divided into seven parts. So you have the law, the prophets, the writings, the gospels in the book of Acts, the general letters, the letters of Paul, and the book of Revelation. So you have that. And then finally, the article suggests that the Bible was initially divided into 49 books, which is obviously, what, seven times seven, for those of you who took math in elementary school at least. However, this is something new to me, so take it for what it's worth. Because in our lifetime, the Bible has always been divided into what? 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, and 27 in the New Testament. Which is pretty cool to me as well. Why? Well, go with me on this one. So, 7 is the perfect number, meaning spiritually complete or perfect. 6 is the number of man or humanity. So humans were created on the sixth day of creation. We know that the number 666 is the number given to the Antichrist. And anytime you have three numbers repeating, it suggests that the next number will be what? Also six. 
Now, the reason it stands for the Antichrist, I believe, is that it visually represents our attempts to become God, right? We're trying as hard as we can to reach seven, but we never reach it. It's just six, 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 over and over and over and over. And this is really Satan's main goal, right? He wants to become God or be seen as God in the universe. So it's interesting to me that we have 66 books in the Bible. To me, following the same logic, the Bible is a man-made collection of books trying as hard as it can be to be divine, right? To be the divine truth. But because it wasn't actually written by God, it's really as close as we can get. It's the best we as humans could do with the information that God was giving us through the writers of the Bible. Now, that's 100% the gospel according to Transcend Human. So shoot me an email if you disagree. I have thick skin. But before we leave this section, let's talk about the number seven from a less than spiritual perspective, right? According to thecoolest.com, in numerology, not Christian numerology, just in numerology in general, uh, this is what the number seven typically represents. So this idea is very similar in Vedic numerology, feng shui, and astrology. People with the number seven are said to be insightful, intellectual, searchers for deeper meaning, truth seekers, explorers, spiritual, more psychic energy than those around them, and people who want answers to some of the more abstract questions in the world. Next, it lists why the number seven is so special, because it represents the seven heavens that correspond to the seven classical planets. There are seven notes in a scale. There are seven prime colors in Newton's color sequence. And spiritually, the seven obviously comes from Christianity, with God creating the earth in seven days. And in Islam, parents would name their babies on the seventh day. Now, the article goes on with more and more information about the number, but I think we get the idea. Pretty interesting, right? That even pagan or astrological or cosmological understandings of the number seven seem to match up with what the Bible views the number to be. But that about wraps it up for the number seven. Last time we looked at seven churches and the seven letters that God wrote to those seven churches. This week, we look at two more sets of seven, the seven seals and the seven trumpets. Chapter two, the seven seals and trumpets. So at the end of the letter to the churches or the letters to the churches, um, we find ourselves in heaven. Chapter four opens with John looking up and seeing a door standing open in heaven. He hears a voice that says, John, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. John is taken to heaven in a dream at that very moment, and this is what he sees. So he sees a throne with somebody sitting on it, and this being was as brilliant as gemstones. Around this being were 24 elders. These elders were clothed in white, and they had crowns on their heads, and the throne was generating this energy. It was basically manifesting thunder and lightning. In front of the throne... There were seven torches burning brightly, and in front of the throne, there was a shiny sea of glass like crystal. Also around the throne were these four living beings, and these beings were pretty bizarre. They're covered with eyes in the front and in the back, 
One of them looked like a lion. One looked like an ox. The third looked like a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these um, creatures or living beings had six wings and the wings were covered with eyes. And these four beings had one job. They kept repeating this phrase over and over day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And every time they said this, the 24 elders would fall down and worship the being on the throne, and they would place their crowns at his feet, joining in the chant. Then chapter five opens as John notices a scroll in the hand of the being on the throne. The scroll had writing on the inside and on the outside, and it had seven seals on it. And an angel exclaimed, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? When it appeared that nobody was able to open the scroll, John began to cry until one of the 24 elders said, dude, cut it out. Look over there. The Lion of Judah is here and he can open it because he won the victory by dying on the cross. He alone can open the scroll. At that point, Jesus shows up and basically stands before the throne and the four living beings and John could tell that he had been killed and yet lived. He had seven horns, seven eyes, representing the sevenfold spirit of God that had been sent out into every part of the earth. Jesus took the scroll and everyone in attendance sang a new song about him, his worthiness and his ability to open the scroll. They were joined by thousands upon millions of angels creating a huge, mighty chorus, and then they stopped. And that's where chapter six begins, with Jesus taking the scroll and starting the process of opening each seal. So let's walk through the seals and see what they say. Seal number one. When the first seal was opened, John explains, I looked up and I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head, he rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. The second seal, John explains, then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. Seal number three, John explains, I looked up and I saw a black horse and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings saying, a loaf of wheat, bread, or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay and don't waste the olive oil and wine. Seal number four, John explains, I looked up and I saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death and his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, with disease, and with wild animals. The fifth seal, John explains, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful to their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, 
who were to be martyred had joined them. Seal number six, John explains, there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave or free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to survive? Then, between the sixth and the seventh seal, there is this little break. Break in the action. Intermission, if you will. And John sees a few other things. So, during this intermission, he sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the wind so that it doesn't blow on the earth. And he realizes that they're holding back some really bad stuff so that the people could be added to the book of life. He's shown that during this time, people were receiving what's called the seal of God, this mark that basically shows that they belong to him. Not because he owns them, but because they had the freedom to choose, and they chose him during their life on earth. He also sees that 12,000 men were marked from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, equaling 144,000 men. Next, John sees a massive crowd, too great to count, from every nation, tribe, and language, worshiping the being on the throne. And John asks, who are these people? And he's told, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb, and that has made them white. And with that, the show is over. John sees Jesus break the seventh seal. When the seventh seal is broken, John explains, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. And a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and he threw it down upon the earth and thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. And with that, the seven angels with the seven trumpets step up and get ready to do their thing. So here we go. The first trumpet. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down to the earth. One third of the earth was set on fire, one third of the trees were burned, and all of the green grass was burned. The second trumpet. Then I saw the second angel blow his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One third of the water in the sea became blood, one third of all living things in the sea died and one-third of all of the ships on the sea were destroyed. Trumpet number three. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. 
The name of the star was Bitterness. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Trumpet number four. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark. And one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air, Terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. The fifth trumpet. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. When he opened it, smoke poured out as from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and the air turned dark from the smoke. Then locusts came out from the smoke and descended on the earth, and they were given the power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or the plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain, like the pain of a scorpion's sting. In those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads, and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like women's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore armor made of iron, and their wings roared like the army of a chariot rushing for battle. And they had tails that stung like scorpions. And for five months, they had the power to torment people. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, the destroyer. The first terror is past, but look, two more terrors are coming. The sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice speaking from the four horns of the gold altar that stands in the presence of God. And the voice said to the sixth angel who held the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Then the four angels who had been prepared for this hour and this day and this month and this year were turned loose to kill one-third of all of the people on earth. I heard the size of their army which was 200 million mounted troops. And in my vision, I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them. The riders wore armor that was fiery red and dark blue and yellow. The horses had heads like lions and fire and smoke and billowing sulfur, sulfur billowed from their mouths. One third of all of the people on earth were killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horses. Their power was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails had heads like snakes, and with the power to injure people. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they do not repent of their murders, or their witchcraft, or their sexual immorality, or their theft. Now, after the sixth trumpet, there's another break, another interlude. 
before the final trumpet. And during this interlude, John is introduced to two new things. First, the small scroll. So another angel came out of heaven with a small scroll, and he stood with one foot on the sea and the other on the land. And when the scroll was opened, the angel let out a great shout. And what came back were seven thunders. John quickly tried to write down each of the seven things he heard. But the angel said, no, you don't get to document these things. They're secret. And then the angel swore an oath that things would not be prolonged. God's plan must be fulfilled. So John took the small scroll and he ate it because that's what he was told to do. When it was in his mouth, it was sweet like honey, but when it made it to his stomach, it turned bitter. Next, John is introduced to this thing called the two witnesses. So he does some measuring, and then he does some counting for some reason. I don't know. Then he was told about the two witnesses and the difficulties that they would face. This difficulty would last for, you guessed it, 42 months, or 1,260 days, or 3.5 years. Sound familiar? It's that 1,260-year prophecy that we've talked about before. Now, the people will do really bad things to the two witnesses during this time, but they will be punished. The two witnesses cannot be killed. After the time period, God breathed life back into them, and they were revived. It says that they were taken up into heaven in front of their enemies and that all of this happened just before a massive earthquake hit the earth, an, an earthquake that would kill over 7,000 people, one-tenth of the entire city. And just like that, we are returned to our regularly scheduled event, the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet, when it blew, there were loud voices shouting in heaven, the world is now become the kingdom of our Lord and Jesus Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders, sitting on their thrones before God, fell with their faces to the ground and worshipped him. And they said, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath. But now the time of your wrath has come. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name. From the least to the greatest, it is time to destroy all of those who cause destruction on the earth. Then in heaven, the temple of God was opened and the ark of his covenant could be seen in the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed and roared, and there was a great earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. And that's it. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and a couple interludes with some confusing information. Sound about right? So this is definitely where apocalyptic prophecy starts to go crazy. It's not for the faint of heart. It, it's easy to read, right? But then your eyes get glazed over and before you know it, you're 20 verses in and you're like, I don't even know what I'm reading anymore, right? So what do you do? You put it down. If you're like me, that's what you do. You read things like this and you just have to put it down because it's so out there. Like, how could we possibly make sense of stuff like this, right? Chapter three, decoding the sets of seven. So let's get the easy part out of the way. 
As we said in the last episode, there's no reason to discuss the other interpretations of these prophecies. The idealist believes that Bible prophecy is nothing more than a work of fiction, so we don't really need to talk about the idealist interpretation. Preterists believe that all prophecy occurred before the death of Jesus and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, so there's no real reason to discuss this interpretation, unless you're a history buff. The futurist believes that everything we just talked about is going to happen at the end of time. They believe in much more literal interpretation than a figurative interpretation or a metaphorical interpretation. In other words, when the Bible talks about the two witnesses, these must be two people who experience persecution and eventually die only to be raised again. And in the fifth trumpet, when the locusts came from the smoke and stung the earth like scorpions, attempts are made to find a real-life substitute for locust, like a helicopter, for example, that can shoot lasers at the end of time or something like that. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on the futurist interpretation, but just know that all of these prophecies from here on out are in the future. And there has to be a literal interpretation for almost all of them. If you do want more information about the futurist view, I have linked uh, a couple YouTube videos in the show notes. Um, one where Perry Stone does a pretty good job describing the futurist view of the seven seals and how they play out after the rapture during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. So feel free to go watch that if you want more information there. But that leaves us with the historicist interpretation again. Remember, the historicist view of apocalyptic prophecy has been the common narrative for a really long time, literally beginning with the with um, Victorinus of Patau, probably not saying that right, but anyways, he began presenting this view back as early as 300 AD, with others adding to his work in the 6th and 7th centuries. Joachim of Flores wrote in the 10th century, and his works not only corroborated the historicist view, but also continued to suggest that the papacy, the Catholic Church, is really the fulfillment of the Antichrist figure in prophecy. Next came the Great Disappointment we've talked about in 1844, where the Millerites took the historicist view just a little too far, believing that that 2300-year prophecy was actually predicting the end of the world. When they woke up a few days later and realized their prediction hadn't come true, they went back to the Bible and continued to study the prophecies to see where they went wrong. This new form of study, this new studying, basically led to a belief in something called the investigative judgment. It's a concept that basically all hinges on this verse in Daniel 8.14, where it says, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, Miller and his believers believe this to mean that the world would end, right? That God would return and clean up the mess that we made of earth. He thought the word sanctuary was being used symbolically or as another word for earth or world. So when the world didn't end, they had to go back to the Bible and study it again with fresh eyes. And what they discovered is that the word sanctuary might actually mean sanctuary, right? Instead of being uh, figurative, it actually meant sanctuary. What they realized is that there were multiple versions of the sanctuary, right? There are the earthly ones that we understand, 
right? There's the sanctuary that the Israelites built and carried around with them in the wilderness. This temporary um, sanctuary eventually found a home in Jerusalem and was a physical temple until it was destroyed in 70 AD. But the Bible refers to these temples as copies or shadows of the temple that is in heaven, right? There are passages where Jesus refers to the high priests in those temples, and then he refers to himself as the high priest. Or in books that Paul wrote, Paul refers to Jesus as a better high priest for us. Here are just three examples um, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 9.11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Hebrews 8.2, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Crazy, right? So Miller began to see that the world wasn't supposed to end or be cleansed in any way in 1844. Instead, it had to do with the actual sanctuary in heaven. In 1844, Jesus entered the most holy place in the heavenly temple and began the work a high priest would do once a year. Now, here on earth, this is called Yom Kippur. So, once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the innermost section of the temple. First, he would sprinkle blood, the blood of a bull, on the altar for himself and his family. Then he would sprinkle the blood from a goat for the people of Israel. Then he would offer incense over the Ark of the Covenant. Now, history tells us that a cord was often tied to the ankle of the high priest just in case he did something wrong or the sacrifices were not accepted by God and he died for some reason. This way they could pull him out of the Holy of Holies without disturbing God or the most holy place any further. Crazy, right? So if this is true, in 1844, Jesus entered the most holy place in heaven. Right? This has become known as the investigative judgment. Jesus didn't need to sprinkle blood on anything because he had already shed his blood on the cross. The simple fact that he was there brought with it the ability to save people from their sin. So there he was, Jesus standing in the most holy place with books being opened, right? The book of life. And so began the investigative judgment, which is what? Well, it's basically Jesus walking through the life of every single human being, past, present, and future, right? Walking through the, the lives of the very first people on earth, all the way to the lives of the people living at the end of time. Now, for those of us living and those of us who will live, the same thing is true of the people who lived at the beginning of time. Because God knows the beginning from the end, he knows the steps that each of us will take in our lives and the choices that we will make, either for him or against him. So it is believed that this is going on right now, that this investigative judgment began in 1844 and will continue until the end of time. When Jesus finally makes it through all of the names, the books will be shut and there will be no more second chances.
At that time, Jesus will rally the troops, so to speak, and make his way back to earth to rescue his children. Okay, so I know that was a lot, um, but I had to find a place somewhere to throw in this piece about the investigative judgment. Um, And it just seemed to make sense to do it right here in this episode. But just so you know, the investigative judgment isn't a commonly held belief in historicism. So this is definitely a Millerite slash Seventh-day Adventist take on the historicist view. I just want to be honest about that. So let's get back to the seven seals and the seven trumpets, right? There is a lot to unpack with each of these sets of seven, but we're not going to get into the weeds. We're not going to dive in and, you know, word for word, try to explain what each of the different things means. Similar to the seven churches, we're just going to high level it, right? We're just going to net it out. That way we can get the big picture and then we can always go back and study certain pieces of it in more detail if we really want to. So here we go. Now we're going to start with the whole onion peel concept again, right? Remember the last time how the seven letters to the seven churches had all of these different layers of interpretation, right? Each letter represented a period of time in the church's history from then until the end of time. Each letter was written for a specific church in that day, and each letter was written for every church and every person between then and the end of time. And remember in Daniel, where each dream was different but followed the same path, each dream talked about the progression of civilizations from Babylon to immediate Persia to Greece to Rome to Rome broken into 10 pieces and eventually to God's kingdom. In the first dream, it was the, um, the statue, right? In the next, it was the beasts, the lion, the bear, the leopard, the terrible beast. Then in the dream after that, it was the ram and the goat and the little horn. And each dream was basically going back over the same progression of civilizations, but each one added a little more detail over time. Each onion peel was offering a little more information and fleshing things out that would happen in the future. And so it is with Revelation and the sets of seven. Very similar to the pattern in Daniel, the sets of seven are different ways of looking at the same periods of time and the things that will happen in the future. While futurists will take and push all of this information down to the end of time, assuming there will be literal fulfillments for all of it, historicists look back and they find that the majority of the information has already happened. It's already in the past. When we look back, we can see events that have already fulfilled many of these prophecies. And we find that each set of seven is referring to the similar time periods, just as they did in Daniel, only each is coming from a slightly different perspective. So let's just look at the three sets of seven that we have so far. The seven churches. The seven churches walk through those periods of time as encouragement and reproof for the Christian church throughout each time period. The seven seals are the experiences and the worsening conditions for the Christian church during this time and during these time periods. And the seven trumpets are called the judgments of God. So these are judgments that God allowed to happen in those time periods based on the things that were going on and and the human involvement in the persecution and in the, in the ways that the church was working at that time. 
So let's start with the seven churches and the seven seals and just kind of walk through the time periods that each of these represent. So Ephesus was the first church, the passionless church, right? The first century AD. And it matches up very well with the first seal or the white horse. So the white horse basically refers to the white purity of the original gospel message and the church was able to take that pure message to the world. So those two match up. Next, you have Smyrna, which was the persecuted church from about 100 to 313 AD or until Constantine. And this matches up with the second seal or the red horse. So nothing says persecution like like red, right? During these years, the church was highly persecuted. Rome sought to stamp out basically anything to do with the early Christian church. Next, you have Pergamos from around 313 to 538 AD. We talked about Pergamos being the popular church, right? So this was basically from Constantine to Justinian. And this matches up with the third seal or the black horse. So this represents the dark days in the church when popularity actually led to the truth being challenged and thrown out. Very popular pagan beliefs and ways crept in, and very few people in the church held the truth, the original gospel truth. Next, we have Thyatira, the compromising church. So this was between 538 and the late 1500s, or the Middle Ages to the Reformation, basically. And this matches up with the fourth seal, or the pale horse. So this horse represents the deepest depths that people can go to spiritually. So the rider of the horse is named what? Death. And the grave follows him. Pretty dark, right? This is the time period of papal rule during the Dark Ages. So the Catholic Church basically ruled both spiritually and politically. They had ultimate power. And historians estimate that between a quarter and a third of Europe's population died or were killed during this time period. Next, you have the church at Sardis, what was known as the Dead Church. And this was between 1565 and 1750 AD. So right after the Reformation happened. This matches up with the fifth seal, which is the martyrs under the altar. So this seal basically refers to the time as the Dark Ages were coming to a close. Protestant reformers were speaking out and really breaking away from the Catholic Church, but to remain in power, the Church tortured and killed many of these reformers. Next, you have the Church at Philadelphia, known as the Missionary Church. So this is from 1750 until 1844. This is the sixth seal. So the signs in the heavens and the great awakening. So right after the dark ages, the prophecy suggests that as the church was going through this awakening and beginning to understand prophecy more clearly, there would be some pretty significant signs in the natural world. Now, here are the proposed fulfillments of those prophecies. So it talks about a great earthquake and In 1755, November of 1755, there was the Lisbon earthquake, said to be one of the worst earthquakes of all time. Next, it talks about the darkening of the sun. On May 19th, 1780, um, there was an event called the Dark Day. No reason has been found. 
why the sun went dark on this day, but it has been documented that it was the dark day. Next, the verse talks about the blood moon, May 19th, 1780, basically the the day right after the dark day or the night right after the dark day, the moon appeared to be solid red. Next, you have the falling of the stars. Um, in November 12th, from November 12th to 13th, 1833, there was the Leonid meteor shower. And historians have basically documented there were as many as 2 million events per hour for five to six straight hours. That's a lot of shooting stars. So that's pretty interesting, right? That each of these took place and are documented in history right when the Bible said they would happen, right after the dark ages had passed. Next, we have Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And this church is supposed to represent 1844 to the end of time. And it matches up with the sixth seal, which is Christ's return. So the sixth seal is said to cover both the Philadelphia and Laodicea time periods, which really makes anal retentive people like me a little nervous, right? But the closer I look, the more interesting this development because becomes because the sixth seal explains two very important things. It explained the signs in the natural world, but also the craziness that will exist at the end of time for those who choose against God. So it talks about the people running around, hiding from him, looking for caves and calling for the rocks to fall on them. Not a pretty sight. But you can see how that impacts both of the final churches. So those in the church of Philadelphia saw the signs in the natural world, right? And we in the church of Laodicea will see the coming of Jesus at the end of time. The other cool thing that is that in Revelation, there is an interlude between the sixth and seventh seals. So let's move right to the seventh seal. So this is the one where it said there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So the interlude between six and seven almost suggests that there is something different coming, that the last seal is cut off from the rest. And sure enough, when it comes, it is totally different. Instead of describing a period of time in history, it simply describes a condition, silence. There is silence in heaven. Why? Because it has been vacated, right? Jesus and a mighty host of angels have made their way to earth. And then the seventh seal hands things over to the seven trumpets. I saw the seven angels who stand before God and they were given seven trumpets. So that's it. We basically roll from the seven seals right into the seven trumpets, which are said to be that the, the judgments that God allows to be poured out on one group of people by potentially another group of people, right? Bad things that happened throughout time, not things that God caused to happen, but when God pulls back his protection, the world makes choices that can be disastrous. So let's dive into the seven trumpets and see how they match up with the time periods that we just talked about with the seals and the letters. So the first trumpet basically corresponds with 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment for not recognizing the Messiah and eventually killing him. The second trumpet roughly measures to 378 to 476 AD. And, and this is really the destruction of the Roman Empire. And it's the judgment of God 
basically for their role in killing Jesus and attacking the Christians under their rulership. The third trumpet refers to the Middle Ages, where the papacy basically took control and started to inject new beliefs into the Christian tradition. This time period is really the battle between good and evil, between truth and deception. The fourth trumpet kind of moves from there up until the Dark Ages, throughout the Dark Ages, where the papacy continued to control the church and and also adopted political control at the same time. This time period represents the utter depravity that can occur when the gospel is twisted and used as a weapon. Next, we have the fifth trumpet, and this is believed to be a 150-year period of time between 1299 and 1449 AD. And people differ on the the understanding of this. Um, Some believe it's atheism. Some believe it's the rise of Islam. Um, But the one that I saw the most was the rise of Islam and the mighty Muslim forces uh, with continued judgment on the Eastern Roman Empire. And then the sixth trumpet is thought to be the rise of the Turks and the final destruction of the Eastern Roman Empire, the final judgment against that empire, um, and basically led to the rise of the Ottoman Empire, which ruled for around 390 years. And eventually they surrendered to the European nations in 1840, which leaves us with the countries of Europe that we know today. And finally, the seventh trumpet. When the seventh trumpet sounds, judgment is carried out on who? The entire world. God's plan is finally put in place and his work is finished. This is where the eternal kingdom from Daniel's very first dream, remember that dream where the rock was cut out of a mountain with unseen hands and it grew until it took over the entire world? That is seen right here in the seventh trumpet as the fulfillment of that. So that's where we're at. Um, We're at God's kingdom where there is no equal, right? Nobody can challenge God's rule. So that's it. I mean, that's it for the seven seals, the seven trumpets. But just so you know, the seven trumpets actually match up symbolically with the seven last plagues or bowls, as they're called. So I didn't want to do the plagues in this episode because that would have made it even longer. But I think what we'll do is when we get to the plagues, we'll kind of back things up and see how they match up with the trumpets. All right. So let's end with a couple things that we learned during the intermissions or the interludes of the seals and trumpets. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail on how these came to be or where these interpretations came from. These are just some of the common interpretations um, that historicists have used uh, to to explain these things. So let's dive in. First is the 144,000. So just so you know, this is typically viewed by historicists as being 100% symbolic. So the number 12 in prophecy typically describes perfect symmetry or spiritual completeness. So for example, there were 12 disciples. Um, The measurements of the new Jerusalem are based on the number 12, things like that. So taking 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel is basically just symbolic of the complete number of those who chose God over Satan. So the 144,000 could be symbolic of the end times church, right? Those who go through the tribulation and militantly carry the truth 
in the face of adversity and competing global beliefs. Next, we have the great multitude. So the entire group of people who chose God in the great controversy between God and Satan. This group could include the 144,000, or they could be distinct from each other. It doesn't really matter. But it is more likely representing every single person from the beginning to the end who makes it to heaven, including the 144,000. Next, we have the little book. That we that little book that we talked about. Um, so this is the book of Daniel. Remember in our last episode on Daniel, he was told to shut up the book for it is to be sealed up until the end of days. Well, John is handed this little book and he is told to eat it. It tastes sweet, but when it goes into his stomach, it becomes bitter. Now, a lot of people believe that this represents the great disappointment. So the book of Daniel was basically reopened in the 1830s, right? And groups like the Millerites ate it up. They thought it was the greatest thing ever. It tasted like honey because it meant that the world was ending to them. However, it became bitter in their stomachs when they realized that they were wrong about the interpretation. And finally, we have the two witnesses. So like we talked about, futurists believe that these are two literal people living at the end of time. Historicists, on the other hand, view the two witnesses typically as being symbolic of the two parts of the Bible, the Old and New Testament. Now, the symbolic language walks us through the history of the Bible, how important it was, how it holds the truth, how it was perverted during the Middle and Dark Ages, how they were used as a weapon to kill and destroy, how they were almost extinguished by France during the Enlightenment, where the Bible was actually burned in the streets, and how they were revived and continue to be important until the end of time. So that's it. We're going to land this plane and um, another crazy episode with a lot of information to digest, right? So before we close, I just want you to know that a lot of this stuff that we talked about today is up for interpretation. Even within the historicist community, you know, people don't believe the same things. People don't match up on every single point, point for point. The details that I've given today aren't even a hill that I'm going to die on. I'm not 100% sure in my own mind that a seal represents that specific time period or a trumpet is talking about a very specific Ottoman king, for example. But at the same time, I do believe in the overarching structure, right? I can see that the churches, seals, and trumpets all cover time periods and try to tell the same story from different lenses. And that's a hill I can die on, right? Not the details, not the verse-by-verse analysis of what each of those specific things mean. I hope you find this as fascinating as I do. Next week, we dive into the ultimate battle, the beasts from the land and the sea, and the three angels message. Until then, have a great week, everyone. And as always, keep transcending human.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.